All right, before I get to my next guest, Charlie Meacham, I want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800 329-8154. All right, now joining me is Charlie Meacham. Let me give you some background on Charlie. He's from Nelsonville, Ohio, which is a little southeast of Columbus. Graduated from Miami University of Ohio with his undergraduate degree and then Yale Law School. Charlie served three years in the Army. He was the chairman and CEO of Taft Broadcasting Company, which later became the Great American Broadcasting Company. In October of 1990, he became the commissioner of the LPGA. He's been a business advisor to several golf legends, including Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Julie Inkster, Annika Sorenstam, and Dottie Pepper. In 2000, he was named the Great Living Cincinnatian, the highest honor awarded by the city of Cincinnati. He's written a book titled Total Anecdotal, a fun and unique guide to help people become a better speaker and writer. He has his own podcast called 15 Minutes with Charlie. And I'm very honored he's with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Charlie, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to visiting with you. Charlie, you've had an amazing life, and I, and I want to start with the early days. And I'm curious, how does a young man coming out of being a captain in the Army, to, then practicing law, and then becoming CEO of a major broadcasting company? Well... Nothing that's happened in my life other than my first job was ever planned. Uh, everything just happened for uh, a variety of reasons. But to answer that specific question, I was the lawyer for Taft Broadcasting Company, and their chairman and founder was killed in a very tragic accident, and he had made no provision for a successor. So to my both uh, horror, horror and amazement, I was asked to come in and become the, the CEO in, in 19, late 1967. That was in a day when uh, broadcasting companies were limited, if you can believe this, in this day and age. But in that day and age, uh, the FCC only allowed you to own seven TV, seven AM, and seven FM. So we were generating enormous amounts of money, and we couldn't spend it to buy other broadcast companies. 
So we, uh, our first acquisition was actually the Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Company, and after that, amusement parks and uh, television and radio. So it happened completely uh, by happenstance, and then after that, uh, I, in sort of a similar way, I became uh, commissioner of the LPGA. But that's how the TAF thing happened. And it's interesting to me, Charlie, because the Taft Broadcasting Company was owned by the family of William Howard Taft, our 27th president. Talk about the roots of the company. Actually, it had two two roots. Uh, the Taft family had a, I've always called it a political uh, arm and a business arm. And the political arm was, as you said, William Howard Taft and Senator Robert Taft and on down that line. Then there was another line uh, of the family named Ingalls, I-N-G-A-L-L-S. And that was the the business uh, arm. And the two got along quite well and uh, and built this uh, wonderful company. And Charlie, you mentioned Hanna-Barbera. And I read that uh, while you were at uh, at Taft Broadcasting, Hanna Barbera was sort of pitched the the Flintstones, but the Flintstones wasn't actually the first name that they wanted to use, right? It's it's a funny story, and probably more often happens more often in life than you would realize. But when Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera came up with the idea for the uh, space, you know, the the old family of the Flintstones, they found to their uh, horror that the Flintstones' name was already taken. So they decided, I'm sorry, they wanted to call it the Flagstones. And to their horror, they found that the Flagstones' name was already taken. So somewhat reluctantly and uh, and uh, hesitantly, they they fell back on the Flintstones, which is hard to imagine today that that wasn't the first name, but it wasn't. And Charlie, over the course of your career, you've been friends with so many interesting people. And and I want to start off by asking you about a, a fellow uh, Ohioan, and that's Neil Armstrong. And I'm I'm a yeah. huge fan of the space program going back to the Apollo days. And and I've always read that that uh, that Neil was a very humble, sort of unassuming sort of guy. Is that what he was really like? Almost, almost to a fault. Uh... I used to I used to say to him, Neil, for God's sake, don't be so damned humble. You've you've done one of the, the greatest things in the history of, of of mankind. But his his argument or his philosophy, I guess, was he said, Look, uh all I did was get in a capsule with a couple of other guys and do exactly what I've been trained to do for years and exactly what the support staff of thousands of people, all we had to do was follow instructions. Well, I'm sure that was an overstatement, but he really believed that. So he was humble. I think I think whatever uh, course in life Neil had chosen, he would have been humble. He was just that, that kind of person. But he was a delightful guy. He agreed to uh, join my corporate board, uh, pardon me, board at Taft Broadcasting Company. And we became very close friends. In fact, one of my favorite memories is that I persuaded him to go on uh, the Taft Broadcasting Company board. And that was not an easy thing because 
uh, right after he had made the moon landing, hell, every company in America uh, wanted him on their board. So when he agreed to come on our board, I, I was really pleased. He became an incredible board member, smart as a whip, asked the hardest questions. And I remember in one board meeting, he really got me on something, pushing me on something we were doing. And I finally, I said, who the hell asked you to get on this board? <laughs> he, he said, you know damn well who did. But he was just an amazing person. My wife and I became very close friends with uh, Neil and his wife, Janet. And uh, we we became just deep, personal friends. And uh, I, I would have admired him for any reason because uh, he was just a genuinely fine human being. And and as a space nut, I, I got to ask the question, did he ever talk about you know what it was like going to the moon and stepping out onto, you know, being the first human being to actually be able to step on the moon? The only time I ever heard him talk about it was when people, people pushed him to talk about it. Uh, on his own, he would never say a word about it. But I remember uh, uh, one time he came out to the club where we lived in California, down in La Quinta, to play with me and the member guest. And uh, it was three days, you know, nine holes a day for three days. And uh, I was a little concerned that maybe people would kind of bug him a little bit, but they didn't until the last day. We're on this one tee, and there's a lot of rocks around the tee. And uh, this one guy said, uh, well, Neil, what was it like on the moon? And I thought, oh, God, what now? And he looked at the guy and he said, great view, lousy service. <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> and the other, the other example I would give you, because your question's a very good one. Uh, a friend of mine would, took him out fishing, uh, deep sea fishing down in Florida. And I, I was not there, but my friend told me this story. The captain of the boat, was simply beside himself that Neil Armstrong was going to be on uh, on his ship. So uh, they uh, were going, and again, Neil didn't say anything about it. Uh, the, the, the captain finally said, uh, Mr. Armstrong, I, I just I admire you so much. I just need to ask you, how how did you navigate? Your, how did you navigate to the moon? And Neil said, well, it wasn't that hard. You just looked out the window, and there it was. <laughs> so, he he refused to ever be uh, pushed into into talking. But I have a couple of wonderful memories. One time when he and his wife came to visit us in California, uh, we played golf. Then we came back to our house. It, it was getting dark, and uh, we laid a couple of blankets out in our backyard. And of course, uh, down there, the, the, there's a zillion stars and uh, he he laid there on the blanket and went to every constellation with us explained everything that there was to about it and then a similar example we took a trip to uh, Italy with him Tuscany and uh, I learned that there was a museum in a little town of Vinci which was the home of the uh, birthplace of Leonardo da Vinci so I thought it might be kind of fun, and so we went over there, and in the museum, they had recreated probably 20 uh, of Da Vinci's uh, inventions in 
they were they were miniature and they were made of wood, but they were quite uh, quite good. And of course, our uh, my wife and I and our friends had no idea what they were. Neil went down the line, explained every single invention, what it was for, whether it worked or not. And by the time we got down to the end of the row, I turned around. There must have been 50 people behind us listening. And I think they thought he was the the museum curator. (laughs) But (laughs) the point being, point being, uh, he just never uh, volunteered things. But if you ask him an intelligent question, he, he would uh, he would answer it. Charlie, you were also a business consultant with Arnold Palmer for a couple of decades, and you actually had an office right next to his at Bay yep. Hill. What was it like sitting down with Mr. Palmer every day over a cup of coffee and chatting with him? You know, my probably my strongest memory is he was exactly as portrayed. He was exactly the guy that the media idolized and that all of his friends loved. There was no pretense. Uh, I'm sure he had an ego. How could you not? But it was never, it was never center stage. He, uh, he was a kind man and he, he loved what we used to talk about it. Uh, I'd say, Arnold, you know, the, Crowds are your are your oxygen, and he'd laugh about it. He'd say, "Absolutely right. I've got to have people around me. I love them, and I like to interact with them." So uh, he had uh, he had uh, charisma, of course, but it wasn't it wasn't flashy. It was real, and we had more fun when I sat in the chair about uh, ten feet from from him, an open door. And he would get these letters, and he'd say, "Hey, look at this!" And he'd sail it through the door, <laughs> and I would uh, give him a reaction to to my thoughts. So all I can say is, uh, he was exactly the person that you saw and loved. You also have a relationship with Jack Nicholas, and I was curious: did that come out of your relationship with Mr. Palmer, or did that come out uh, come uh, about differently. It came out just the opposite of that. I've known Jack since 1970 when he designed a, a golf course for my old company, Tap Broadcasting, uh, north of Cincinnati. And I, I knew Jack forever. Uh, then when I became commissioner of the LPGA, I began running into Arnie at tournaments. And we got to know one another a bit. But then uh, the last tournament of my LPGA tenure was uh, at at the uh, PGA West down in uh, Palm Springs. And I went over because Jack and Arnie were playing in a a team event. And I went over and I said, Arnie, uh, uh, good luck. It said same to Jack. And he said, I've been meaning to call you. Let's have a beer after after my round. And I said, fine. I said, got him. So we sit down in the uh, upstairs bar, PGA West, and he buys each of us a beer. And then typical Arnie, he says, I want you to come in and run all my companies. <laughs> and so I said, hold everything. I, I wasn't <laughs> able to do that at that time because I had some other commitments. But we, we 
sort of massaged it, and a few months later, I became his personal advisor and shared the office with him. So actually, I, I knew Jack long before I knew Arnie. And Mr. Nicholas is actually the guy who recommended you to be commissioner of the LPGA, I think I was reading. Is that is that correct? It's a great story. When I was invited to become commissioner, I thought, you know, I, I've been around golf, and I, I think I know golf reasonably well, but I don't know it so well that if I'm making a mistake here, I really need to know that. So I knew Jack. Quite well, I drove down to his office in North Palm Beach, and I said, Jack, I need your advice. And Jack's always like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I said, uh, well, I've been asked to be commissioner of the LPGA, and uh, I just like your opinion. And Jack said uh, in that kind of high voice, Charlie, you better take it. I recommended you. <laughs> I didn't even know it. <laughs> but he, he had, and that was all I needed. I went from there. So, uh, and Jack and I are still friends. Uh, we talk uh, probably every week or two about a lot of things. And I'm going to hopefully, if the uh, pandemic doesn't screw it up, I'm going to Muirfield again this year for the tournament. So we've remained very close friends. But I got to know there couldn't have been two two people more different and yet closer than Jack and, and Arnie. And Charlie, do you mind telling the story of when you asked Mr. Nicholas to come to the Camargo Club and play in an event with you and then the clinic he put on, including hitting some shots from the waiter's tray? It was it was a wonderful story. Uh, I've been a member of Camargo, which is a, a great Seth Rainer course in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, one of the really top uh, uh, old, old, old courses in, in America. And uh, I asked Jack if he would come because I had I, I was sponsoring an outing of about oh probably fifty business people uh, from Cincinnati, but most of them were CEOs and pretty pretty bright uh, high high flying guys. So he did, and he played uh, the the he, he when we got to the course, I said Jack, how should we do this? And he said, Well, get a cart, we'll drive around, and I'll stop at each group. Uh, and I'll hit uh, I'll hit four shots from wherever they are. So we did that, and he amazed people, uh, of course. So when it was over, he did a clinic uh, right in front of the uh, of the clubhouse, and uh, most of the guys by that time uh, had had a couple couple of drinks, and but they were in a good mood, and so Jack started to demonstrate different clubs, and. Uh, he was demonstrating the sand wedge. And he said, now, look, guys, look at the flange of the wedge. Look at the ball. The flange goes right under the ball. No problem. There's no reason why you can't always get that ball up in the air. Well, one of the guys who'd had a couple of pops said, uh, yeah, 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 but uh, what, what do you do on hard pan? Well, about that time, a waiter went by with one of those steel serving trays. And Jack said, let me have that tray. So the guy took the glasses and stuff off the tray, and Jack took six balls one at a time and popped them right straight up in the air off the serving tray. And, and he turned to this guy and he said, how's that for heart pain? <laughs> I've never <laughs> forgotten that. <laughs> That's a great story. Yep, it was a great, great story. Charlie, we lost an all-time great 
beer this year and Mickey Wright. She's a, another legend oh, that you knew and, and visited with. She was a, a pretty reclusive lady, but you got to spend some time with her. What was that like? I spent a lot of time with her, and it it would be wrong to describe her as a recluse. She wasn't that. She she was a very private person, and she uh, she didn't suffer fools lightly, as the old saying goes. But uh, for her friends, and you could get her. You know, she would. She didn't like to talk to the media, but uh, they could get her on the phone and talk with her. And she and I became very close. I went down to see her shortly after became, I became commissioner. And she couldn't have been nicer. And But I remember vividly when we finished the conversation, I stayed with probably an hour. I went out to my car and she said, Charlie, uh, you know, you didn't ask me to do anything. And I laughed and I said, no, Mickey, I thought it probably wouldn't be wise in our first meeting to ask you to do something. And she said, a very wise decision. Because <laughs> if I, you know, if I'd come on to her, but she, uh, one of the smartest people I ever knew, loved, uh, loved, uh, uh, the stock market, followed the market, uh, religiously. And I was able to persuade her to do a couple of things. One of which was, uh, a, a tournament, a, a, uh, an outing where we had about, I think maybe six or eight, Groups uh, of of the old players, two two in a group, and th- they were all there. Uh, uh, and Mickey played with Kathy Whitworth, which I've always enjoyed because there's 170 wins between <laughs> between those two gals. And uh, she, uh, I told my wife because we'd never seen Mickey play. I'd read so much about her swing and how Hogan and others had said it's the best swing. They'd ever seen. So uh, we went. Uh, I said to Marilyn, "Look, sure, we're going to get this group off really early. She'll probably be on the practice tee around seven thirty. Let's go watch her because there won't be anybody there, and we can we can watch her swing." And we get down there. It must have been fifty LPGA pros who came to watch her play, watch her swing, and it was it was unbelievable. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of good uh, YouTube stuff on on her swing. But uh, I've certainly never seen better. She was a delightful person, uh, just a very private person, just not comfortable in crowds, and, and felt when she had really carried the tour on her back for uh, quite a few years, she and Whit, that she could she could retire quietly. But uh, I can't say enough for Mickey. And by the way, she wrote a great book, an instructional book called The Right Way. And I would urge any of your listeners to uh, to to get that. It's a wonderful book. Charlie, just a couple more before I let you go. Yeah. And I also read that when you took over as commissioner of the LPGA, you were asked, what do you think our biggest problem is? And you said yeah. the players have a massive institutional inferiority complex. Talk about what I you did. meant by that. Well, when I became commissioner in, in uh, the fall of, of uh, 89, this, the, the tour was getting a lot of bad press. Uh, it wasn't doing very well. The commissioner at that point was not popular uh, with fans, 
players or, worst of all, media. And uh, the uh, PGA Tour, of course, was always a competitive force. But that was about the time that what was originally called, as I'm sure you know, the Senior Tour, was just coming on the scene. And, and the Senior Tour, for your listeners who may not know, in those days, they had everybody. Arnie and Jack and Trevino and, and, and player, everybody. So what was always a tough battle to get sponsorships for the LPGA became even harder because if you'd go in to see a potential sponsor and pitch the LPGA, inevitably they'd say, well, you know, we're, we're thinking about the senior tour. So when I was asked that question, at a player meeting where all the players were there. What's our biggest problem? And I said, I think you have a massive institutional inferiority complex. I said, uh, you don't believe in yourselves. And nobody can ever succeed if they don't believe in themselves. And I said, let's not wait around for somebody to help us out. PGA Tour is not going to give a damn about us. Senior Tour is not going to help us. They're not going to badmouth us. It's not going to do anything to help us. Let's help ourselves. Let's begin to believe in how good we are because you're damn good. Let's look like pros. Let's walk like pros. Let's keep our heads up. Let's believe in ourselves, and you'll be amazed at what will happen. Well, to my great delight, they, they really embraced that theory, and they really did that, and I think it had a lot to do with our success over over my next uh, five years. And Charlie, in your book, there are a couple of really great stories that uh, I want uh, want you to tell. One was about uh, sitting with Richard Nixon at the National College Football Hall of Fame induction dinner. Do you mind sharing yeah. that story? That was an amazing night because... Uh, my company, Tap Broadcasting, was very, a strong supporter of the National Football Foundation, college football. And every year in those days, they had a black tie dinner at the Waldorf. And it, it was a who's who. They had everybody there. And I went uh, most every year. And because of my company's support, I usually got a seat at the head table. So one year, about a week before the, the dinner, I get a call from the guy who's uh, charge of dinner, and he said, Charlie, I, I want to let you know, uh, we're looking forward to having you at the dinner, you're at the head table, and you're going to be seated, seated next to President Nixon. And I said, thanks a lot, because this was <laughs> when Nixon was had been, um, had resigned and had spent probably a year or so in almost in hiding in his home in New Jersey. This was going to be really his first outing. And so they knew that I could, <laughs> I knew how to, to talk. And so they said, uh, I want you to sit next to him. So I thought, what the hell do I say? You know, when you sit down for the first time, you shake hands. And, well, Mr. President, uh, you know, how are things? <laughs> how, how's, how's the old gang? What do you, what do, you do? So I, I happened to be in a bookstore in Cincinnati. I loved, used to love to walk through bookstores. Sadly, they're, disappearing but and I saw a book called Leaders L E A D E R S Leaders which President Nixon had uh, had written 
and it profiled about a dozen people that he considered to be the greatest leaders that he had ever met and associated with. And they included people like uh, Churchill, De Gaulle, and Conrad Adenauer, and on and on. So I read this book with just really a delight. And so when we got to the dinner at the Waldorf, um, after a few pleasantries, I said, uh, well, Mr. President, I just loved, I just finished reading your book, Leaders. And as I said to my wife later, I didn't have to say anything else the rest of the night because he was so thrilled that somebody knew about the book. He loved talking about the people that he profiled in it. And it gave him a way to really kind of resurrect the, the, his kind of glory, you know, his glorious past. So it was a memorable night. The other thing I remember, though, about it, it was perfectly obvious that he was really looking for public acceptance. And I, I noticed, I've never forgotten this, when one of the waitresses came by and handed us the menus for the dinner, he took the menu and then he said, would you like me to sign this? Oh, of course, sir. And he signed it and handed it back to her. But he it was clear to me he was anxious to get public acceptance once again. But it's a it's a it's a night I will never ever forget. And Charlie, you also did a guest appearance on a show with Pete Rose, and it was about the <laughs> LPGA's Hall of Fame. Can you share that story? This is a great. It's a wonderful memory for me. Uh, when I was with the LPGA, we were playing a tournament down in South Florida, and Pete, in those days, had a radio show that he did out of a restaurant. It may have been he may have had his own restaurant then, I don't recall, but it was in a restaurant. They had a studio uh, built into the restaurant, and I got a call one day, and Pete said, "Hey, because I'd known Pete from Cincinnati, we're pretty good pals. We used to play golf together, and so on." I said, uh, he, "Pete said, hey, why don't you come down?" like to do an interview with you about the tournament. So I said, that's great. We'll do that. And uh, so I went down and we, he, he did a great interview, done his homework. He was very complimentary of the, the players and he, he touted that where, where they were, we were playing that week and encouraged his listeners to come out to the, to the event. And then getting near the end of the show, and Pete said to me uh, and, and to the audience, he said, now folks, uh, we're going to take commercial break right here in a minute, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Charlie a really interesting question. So don't tune out. You're going to enjoy this. Click. We go to commercial. And I said, Pete, what are you talking about? He said, I'm not telling you until we come back on the air. So a minute or so later, we come back on the air. Pete says, Charlie, so glad to have the gals here in Florida to play. I love to watch them play. They're so great. Um, I'm told that the LPGA Hall of Fame is the hardest Hall of Fame in all of sports to get into. And I said, that's right, Pete, it is. He said, why is that? And I said, well, Pete, there's no uh, votes from fans. There's no votes from media. Uh, everything is based on how you play on the golf course. Tournaments you win, uh, finishes, and so on. So he said, oh. Isn't that interesting? He said, so the only thing that matters is your play on the field. Of course, by this time, I could see it coming. I, I said, yeah. And Pete said, 
don't you think that's the way it ought to be in every sport? And, and that was the end of the, end of the show. <laughs> it, isn't that classic, though? Brilliant. Yes, that's <laughs> and it's just, brilliant. It's really, it's really tragic. And Pete is the first one to admit that he blames a lot of his failure to get in the Hall of Fame on himself. But still, uh, I've often said if you applied a, an ethics or morality test to the to the members of the Hall of Fame, I think there'd be about six guys left in it, <laughs> and, uh, uh, maybe, maybe seven. But uh, it, it, of course, I'm a Cincinnati, and I consider Pete an old friend. But um, it, it, it does seem to me that if you if you base the entrance requirements on on achievement on the diamond or on the tennis court or on the football field. That's probably the way to go, but I know there's another side to it. But anyway, uh, they don't—they don't have the mic here right now. (laughs) (laughs) Great, good, Charlie. Before I let you go, and God knows I could—I could go on with you for hours because your book is amazing, and and the things that you've done are absolutely mind-boggling. Let our listeners know how they can get a copy of that book, and then how they can stay up to date with what you're doing. Well, actually, I've written two books. The most recent one you've alluded to, Total Anecdotal. There's another one called Who's That with Charlie, which I wrote about 10 years ago. Uh, They are both available on uh, Amazon and I think Barnes & Noble. Uh, uh, I have a website, which I think lists the podcasts that I've done. I've probably done a dozen or so podcasts, and uh, my uh, my uh, uh, website. I mean, my email is just Charles, not Charlie, but Charles Meacham at Yahoo dot com. So they can link up with me through uh, almost any one of those ways. Well, Charlie, it's, it has been a lot of fun having you as part of the show, and like I say, I've got so much more I'd like to get into with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. If you invite me back, I'll, I'd love to come back because uh, I love telling these stories and I appreciate your your willingness to uh, to listen. And so uh, I'll come back anytime you wish. I appreciate that very much, Charlie. Thanks again Thank for being so here. Stay safe, and uh, hopefully we uh, we get that opportunity soon. I'd love that. Take care now. Thank you again. See you, Charlie. Bye bye. That's a great Charlie Meacham, and folks. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who has led just an absolutely fascinating life and has met and interacted with and become friends with, as you heard, you know, some of the greatest people in, you know, our country's history. I mean, that book, again, total anecdotal, a fun and unique guide to help you become a better speaker and writer. But when you hear that, read the anecdote, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I started going through it, couldn't put it down. So I, I can't I can't encourage you enough to check out both of them. And then his podcast, Fifteen Minutes with Charlie, is wonderful as well. So he's uh he's certainly a treasure. And uh I, I want to get him back on the show again soon for, for all of us because uh those stories are absolutely wonderful. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My thanks go out to Tom Patrick, Rob Strano, and Charlie Meacham for joining me. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what my uh, future guest schedule looks like. You can also stream or download any of our shows, and we've got hundreds of them. I mean, we're, we're well over 400 now, 
And you can find them on uh, podcast.co, and that's .co, so not com, podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm. We're all over the net. So uh, if you've got a favorite podcasting site, you'll probably find us on it. Just do a quick search for Next on the T, or just go to uh, our, web- I say our website, nextonthet.net, and we'll, uh, we'll link back, and you'll be able to find them there. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to choose to listen to this show and make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.